0: Good. I thought for a minute Olin was going in that direction and that's, uh, if a parent takes you in that direction instead of that, that's probably remedial training over there and then you go in that direction. Um, We are still in Colossians. Can you believe it? I'm going to take a break on Palm Sunday. Let's see, Brian. I think I'm loud. I don't know. I follow my voice. It's all right? Can you hear me now? Good. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a break from Colossians on uh, Palm Sunday and then Easter, and then we're going to come back. But we're going to begin today, we're going to look at Paul's focusing on the application of all the truths and the principles he's been teaching this little church called Colossae. Now, remember that Colossae, while it's a small town in the valley, it is a very prosperous town, very wealthy town. We would say upper-middle to upper-class citizens who are primarily Gentile. There is a sprinkling of Jewish uh, worshippers at this church, and we don't know that it's the Jewish worshipers per se, but there are also false teachers. They're basically saying that, yes, you can be forgiven of your sins, when you receive Christ as your Savior. And yes, you then obey Him as your Lord. But one thing must be done, and that is circumcision. You must be circumcised as one of your first acts of obedience. You don't love Him unless you're circumcised. Plus, you've got these dietary laws. You've got to observe these festivals. This is the day that we choose for the Sabbath worship. This is... You know, this is all things that the church must do. Now, whenever you hear must, then we must recognize again that those of faith in Jesus Christ only have one must, and that is we must turn to Christ as the sole object of our deliverance and then our heart's trust. There are no musts after that. All after that are, are, we may, but not must. It's not required. The bottom line requirements were met by the thief on the cross. He looked to Christ. He saw his death on his behalf. He said, I would have you to be my Savior, my forgiver. He couldn't come down from the cross and even be baptized. He couldn't come down from the cross and be circumcised. He couldn't come down from the cross and worship. If he could, he might have done those things and he may do those things with a free heart in response to what was done for him, but not must. Now, the reason I say that is because as we look at the scripture this week and then there are two other messages on this, as we look at husbands and wives and children and slaves, this is where Paul is saying, now following your response to to God by placing your faith in Christ. This is what the Christian household should look like. As grace and faith works itself out in the marriage and in child rearing and in relations of children to their their parents and then in relation of slaves to their masters and that we're going to touch on that. Does the Bible not only in- accommodate but encourage slavery. Paul doesn't rule it out here. But that's in a couple of weeks. First, hear God's word this morning, beginning with verse 18 out of Colossians 3, as it's printed in your program or in your Bible. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, and not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That applies to everything that I've just read. For verse twenty five. Page just sticking together. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Pray with me. Father, Though these verses seem few, and I'm only covering just one verse this morning, just looking at the subject of marriage, of relations between husbands and wives, I can't do it. It's Everest before me. I can't cover everything, everything that even this one verse points to. But Father, you can. You can allow me to be precise. You can allow me to be focused. You can allow us to hear your word and you will, by your power, can allow us every opportunity by your grace to us because you so love us to change. So that we can hear the word preached correctly. So that we can hearing have our faith encouraged, and by that faith our actions will be transformed so that we act like Christ in our marriage and in all of our relationships. Father, that's what I'm asking. I come to you as your child. I ask in the name of Christ, and now with hope and faith we look forward to you to deliver. ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I was swamped this week. I had a lot of things going on, that's not to make excuses, but the the volumes that are written on marriage. Now I've got two disclaimers as I begin this. First of all, for those of you who are called to singleness, and some of you are called, this is not a message that you should sleep through. You should simply replace mate with a person. That, is vi- that you're in a very close relationship with, okay? It could be a, a best friend. It could be someone uh, in your family relationship. It could be an next-door neighbor. But someone that you talk to a lot, that you're in a intimate relationship with. Number two, for those of you who are uh, married, I am not beginning to to really dig deep into all elements this morning, you need to do additional work and research and, and read the, the, the exposition as it was. I'm putting forward this morning a lot of truths, but I'm not going to be doing all of the background like an archaeologist showing you the foundation and showing you all of the evidence in support of these things, okay? In other words, I'm asking that you believe me because gonna he- you're going to hear some things that are going to ruffle your feathers, and you're going to blow it off by saying, I don't agree with that, that's just a statistic, that's not me, and you're going to blow it off, or he doesn't know what he's talking about. Read further. Explore further. Particularly those points that are a little ticklish for you. Why does it bother you so? Ask yourself that, okay? And then I might say, for those of you that are single, but you, you say, I don't feel like I'm called to singleness, I'm just not in a relationship yet, then you might hear some things this morning, I hope you do, that will help you. Help you learn both about yourself in a relationship called marriage, and then also something that you should look for, perhaps, in one that would be your chosen mate for life. Now, without further ado, let's talk about paradigms before I get into the message. Okay? The notes are overwhelming in and of themselves on the outline, but the reason that I did that, and Hannah put them in there, is because I may not be able to cover in the time allotted to me this morning, I may not be able to cover all of these things. Like a helicopter uh, operator, we're going to take off, we're going to fly over the landscape, we're going to land briefly in a couple of areas, and then we're going to take off again, and we're going to be looking at things from a great height. So we're not going to be walking through a park that can detail everything. I did want to have it before you, so that, at least I could give you the the principle for you to chew on if I'm not able to cover it. A A paradigm is a set of unwritten rules or assumptions that we make about a subject or an issue or a way of life or actions, and we practice those things until new assumptions... Our new corrections to our old assumptions come into our life and they therefore change our actions. In other words, we're locked into a grid that we are doing certain things. And then new information or a fresh way of doing things or an insight, an aha moment will come along and we start doing it differently. Now, the best illustration of a paradigm shift or a paradigm itself is called meatloaf. It's the the wife that she makes the meatloaf and she cuts off the ends. And the husband asks, why are you cutting off the ends of the meatloaf? And she says, my mother does this. And so at a family uh, reunion and get-together, he comes up to the mother and he says, hey, mom-in-law, why do you cut off the ends of the meatloaf? And she says, well, you see that little old leg over there? That's my mother. She always did it that way, Okay you go and you go, grandmother-in-law. Why do you turn off the ends of the meatloaf? Well, I always had to because I only had a small pan and I had a big meat, meatloaf. You're not getting it, are you? The mother didn't have a small pan. The wife didn't have a small pan. They had a large pan. They had larger pans. But why did she do it? Because she had observed someone doing it that way. A more poignant example, a moving example, is one that Stephen Covey gives in his Seven Principles for Leadership. He says this. He says, imagine a man getting onto a subway. He sits down to read his paper, but he can't read his paper because there are children, there's three children that are just running wild on the subway car. They're coming by, and as he puts the paper in front of him, they tap his paper, and they run on by and laugh. They're getting in the seats, and they're jumping up and down. And it's obvious that the father who is sitting there, just staring out into space, is not doing anything to control them. And so he goes up to the man. And he says, "Excuse me, sir. I hate to interrupt, but could you control your children? Can't you make them sit down and behave?" And the father looks to the man with red eyes, and he says, "Yeah, I, yeah, I, I probably do." He says, "I'm so sorry." He said, "We're." We just we don't know really how to act because we're all just coming from the hospital where their mother, my, my wife, died. Immediately, there's a paradigm shift. We're looking at it through the lens of a certain set of assumptions, and that influences our actions. Now our assumptions are either enhanced or corrected. It influences our actions so that the man can now go back and sit down with a heart of empathy toward that man. What if, what if marriage was not made by God for you to be happy? What if marriage was made by God for you to be holy? What if marriage was not made for you to have a helpmate and a mate to minister and to serve your every want so you could sit back and coast. what if marriage was made so that in an intimate covenant relationship another person could come into your life to be like sandpaper on you, to constantly whittle away on those difficult areas to change you, to be someone that you were previously not? It's a paradigm shift. Paul says to this group of hearers in this church, he would say to them, do not see marriage as something that is for your personal happiness. See marriage as something that is designed for you to die to your own selfish wishes and to serve another. Remember, was Jesus Christ married? Yes, he was. Oh uh, no. A visitor saying, honey, let's get up and leave out of here. We step in one of those heretical churches. Um, Jesus Christ said, basically, he says, I am the groom. The church is my bride. What did Christ do for his bride? Was he selfish and say, okay, now I'm your master and you're my slaves. Rub my feet, rub my back. And there's nothing wrong with rubbing feet and rubbing backs. Okay, don't, don't get out of that idea. Don't justify yourself, guys. Uh, but Christ came and he said, I will serve you. I will serve you even to the point of death for my church, for my bride. And so husbands, Christ is our example. Wives, you know, dying to self and serving our, our mate. Look at these three uh, points. First of all, let me tell you about Jack and Jill because they're going to be our little case study this morning. Yeah, of course, you know, Jack and Jill uh, went up the hill to fetch a pail of water, and Jack fell down and broke his crown. What happened to Jill? He stood up there and looked at Jack and said, you dummy, you can't even get a bucket of water, you know? You can't even stand on a hill with a bucket of water. No, she came tumbling down after. Jill, when she got married, she thought that she would have perfect marriage, even though it got off to a little bit of a rocky start. Jill far from the time she was twelve years old had looked at the magazines as far as what a perfect house for them to live in whenever she met the man of her dreams would look like. She looked at the dining room table set and she said, That's what it will look like in our home. Then she began as she got older to look at wedding books and she said, That's the dress that I will wear and, and that's the that's the type of of, of of accoutrements that we'll have at our reception and and we'll be so happy. And he will work and he will provide for the home. And I will keep the home always ready to entertain. And then she met Jack. And Jack was a very nice guy. He had a promising major in college. He was a, he was going to be a chemical engineer. And he would be making a fair amount of money. And the more she learned about him and the more she learned about those that went into the vocation of chemical engineer, she recognized that Jack had a very promising future. Now, she would not say that she married him for his money, but he did seem to fit those cutouts as being someone who could work, and she wouldn't have to be employed, and she could keep house, and they began to date, and they were mutually attracted to one another. Now, Jack was a workaholic, and they got married while they were still in college, and the next thing you know, Jill finds out she's pregnant. Not only pregnant, but she's carrying twins. She has to drop out of college and not continue. Jack and she experience a couple of years where they begin to get separated because they're in a too small apartment that is filled with baby clutter and baby things, and he is working now an internship all hours on, and when he comes home, what he himself desires is a very close, clean environment and supper ready for him. But what happens is, is Jill has to greet him out of her growing depression and fatigue, having not had a shower, never really even getting out of the bathroom, not by choice but by these two twins running crazy in this too small apartment, having mothered all day looking for some relief from Jack. Jack slowly, slowly, slowly begins to question why did we get married? Now he would never leave because you see Jack is a Christian but he says I will just endure it. But the glow had gone off of the marriage and he began to communicate in not so subtle ways but just by the repeated, repeated pattern of arguments that they began to have that he felt trapped. He felt like the home was not a place of rest or a sanctuary for him. She was no longer the, the, the bouncing, beautiful bride that she was. And then she began to show disrespect to him. She showed disrespect by just resenting him equally. He never helped with the kids. He never did things around the home. And she would even beg him to do those things. He would just come home after hours of work and he felt like he was privileged to, to have a time of rest, and they began to mutually resent one another. And then that's when Jack and Jill, I'm glad to say, this true true story, they began to see a marriage counselor. But they found that marriage counselor through the resource of the church. They got plugged back into church again. They made time for it. They made some friendships, a wise person that befriended Jill said you might want to consider going to a marriage counselor. And they went to see a Christian marriage counselor and he began to shift their paradigm. He began to tell them that there was a way to change that was a part of God's plan for them, that there was hope for their relationship to come alive again but it might not be as they suspected. And the first thing that the marriage council would do is he would point them to God as the creator both of their life, and then he would point to a sovereign God as being in complete control of all of these circumstances that brought them together. And then finally, they would look to Christ to once again do that which they could not do, and that is to reshape even their own marriage and their home in a way that they would be able to have rest, that they would be able to see the love rekindled, that they would be able to grow as a couple. Okay? Now, there's three things that Jack and Jill saw. Three things that I'm just going to hit the highlights of and then move on. All right? First of all, you've got to see God as your creator. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 That's where God came and he said, I have made them. He doesn't say, it's later on in chapter 2 that he talks about making man first and then the woman second. But in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he made them in his image. If you look there, then right there in Genesis 1, God says, he doesn't say that there is any inequality. He doesn't say that there is any inferiority in Eve because she was made number two. He made them both. And he he didn't make one after his image and then one less of his image. He made them both in his image. And you may say, now, how does that help my marriage? How does that help my relationship with this other person that I'm so wed in intimacy to? try to see God as a divine artist. When a new baby is born, we see the, the tiny hands and the tiny feet and, and, and we look at the baby and we thank God for designing those tiny hands and those, those tiny feet and bringing this, this life to birth and, and into our, our family. We celebrate God as a creator then. But we need to begin to look at our mate across from the table at us and say... You know, I would be doing a disservice even to God if I began to resent this creation of God. If I began to judge him or her, then I'm actually standing in a position to judge what God has made. It's, um, there is a, um, I want you to recite this aloud. I am not the creator. I am not the creator. Now stop trying to recreate your mate. Do you understand that we we have this thing in us that says, you know, I I want to climb up to the throne, and I want to say, "Excuse me, God," sit here. You don't have to go anywhere, but just, I want to sit on the throne with you a little bit, okay? I now want to recreate in my image. I want them to be more like me. I want them to do things my way right. ready for your feathers to be ruffled what about your schedules if you're like me and Wendy usually in my family Wendy is the one and my kids too they always want to be early and they always want to be on time and for some reason I have this innate ability to be either right, right on time or a few minutes late And so what happens is I try to get my family to relax and loosen up. we got plenty of time to make it. And then they're after me and they're like, damn, we need to leave now we're going to be late. And the friction, that making of sparks occurs when we begin to recreate our own schedule in one another. How about dinner? Maybe one of you says, "I, I grew up thinking that dinner should be a social affair. We all should sit down at the same time. We should have conversation that goes on but he he just looks at his dinner as a time to just consume I mean he picks up a book he reads a fishing magazine he, he reads the newspaper he eats he doesn't want a lot of chatter which one's right Ah, when we fall in the category of saying which one's right or wrong then again we're coming to a place of judgment neither one is right or wrong how about child rearing Family values. I won't go there, but money. You know, maybe he views money as just something to be spent. And she was raised in a in a more frugal environment. She looks as money as something to be saved. Which one's right? Well, if you're a person that says money should be saved, then you're gonna say he's wrong. If you look at something as money is to be spent, why get all wiggy and possessive and hoard stuff? And you're gonna say she's wrong. Neither one is wrong. Now, I'm saying balance, of course. I'm not talking about somebody that spends himself into debt or necessarily somebody that saves because they're such a skin plant. But we have this tendency where we're different. Where we are different from our mate, we try to recreate them after our own image. Um, secondly, okay, God created them, so I'm not going to try to recreate them in my image. Secondly, realize that God is sovereign over everything and recognizing that He is sovereign, then I can as we begin to have difficulties in the marriage, I can release my breath and I can begin to look to Him and certainly pray. I can pray for assistance to live in this thing called a marriage. I can pray that He will work on my own heart but I will stop controlling the other person. Uh, This afternoon, I'm going to conduct a wedding, Robbie and Sarah. Robbie is from Ohio. His parents visited South Carolina on a regular basis. When it came time to go to college, Robbie chose Clemson. Sarah never met Robbie. She also chose Clemson. And in biology class, Sarah was sitting in front of Robbie, and Robbie said, she's an attractive girl. In biology class, with her sitting in front, he also noticed she's very bright, very bright. And he kept his eye on Sarah, and then they were assigned as lab partners together. So they had to work their schedules out to meet in lab and they had experiments that they had to do together and that was the first time that they had an opportunity to talk. Then Sarah, who had joined a sorority, they were throwing a very large sorority party and they encouraged them all to do a Sadie Hawkins Day invitation to a guide. Sarah didn't really know anybody and she thought of Robbie. And so in lab, she asked Robbie to go to the sorority function. At the end of the sorority function, having gone there together, Robbie said, you know, this was not really a date. Why don't we date? Let's date. And they dated for the next seven years, and today they're going to be married. Now, how much control did Robbie have over their meeting? How much control did he have from Ohio... To, to to sit behind her in that class and to be assigned uh, laugh partners. I like I like Acts uh, seventeen because in Acts seventeen it tells us what's the verse Acts seventeen verse twenty four and twenty seven. that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. What is the point of all that? Before I will conduct a wedding, I always do a bit of premarital counseling. And the very first session, the very first time we get together, I ask each one of them to recite, recite to me how you guys met. And then, at the end of our time together, I encourage them to remember that and never forget. Because they always, as they recite the story, they begin to see that it was God that brought them together. That God, through those circumstances, it wasn't just coincidences. It wasn't just fate, an impersonal fate, or destiny, as it were. But if you believe christian in god then we recognize that he was orchestrating things in your marriage he was orchestrating things because he had a plan yes you are different from one another but god has so orchestrated things by his sovereign design that he knows what your cultural background is and yet he puts you in this marriage where you married someone who has a different cultural background he knows where he he has a lot of weird, He knows what street you're going to live on. He knows what house color you're going to have. He knows all of those things. Now, I don't have time to go uh, deep, and I know this is a very cosmic thought that I'm giving to you right now. But please, let me leave you with this as I leave this point. It is no accident. I know you thought it. I know that in, there have been times if you've been married more than 17 minutes. There have been times that you wondered, did I make the right decision? What if I had not been there? If I had just waited, then that other guy would have shown up. Or if I had just waited, then I would have seen that that gal would have broke up with that jerk and would have seen that I'm the guy that she should have married, but I kind of settled for second best. Have done with that nonsense. You are not sovereign. And because you're not sovereign, quit trying, quit trying to shape your future even as you would shape it. But say, God, you didn't make a mistake. You brought us together. And God, you're not mean toward us. And you're not harsh. You are loving. And you love me so much that you picked this person out of the whole universe for me. Help me to stop resenting. Help me to stop questioning your choice and begin to love this person because of your choice. Will you do that? That's a prayer. Because we're wrong if our heart has come far from that person, particularly because we we think that we've made a mistake. You see, the horizontal relationships that you and I have with one another They're shaped by the vertical relationship that we have for God. And if I love God and I know that He loves me, then that's going to shape the way that I see this other person and I recognize now that God loves me so much that He didn't make a mistake. He, in fact, loves me so much that He picked out the perfect person. And if you don't see them as a perfect person, the problem is not with them. It's not with God. It's you. It's you. Thirdly, and then lastly, understand that God has not only created this person that we're married to and orchestrated like a wonderful conductor, brought them through a series of events into our life because He loves us. But He also would have us to recognize that Jesus Christ is in the home and that is to give us hope. Um, This morning... As we come to this table, I want you to think about the person that you set across from in your own home. How do you see them? Do you look across the table? Let's say it's the family table where you have a meal every day. Do you look across the table and you say, it is so hard to love them because their sin is so great. They're so annoying. They're so difficult to live with. Or, do you look across the table and say, I see a sinner, but I'm a sinner too. I see a sinner, but I know I've got my stuff too. Or, do you look across the table and say, I see a sinner, but I'm a worse sinner. I'm a worse sinner. And by the grace that God has shown me by remembering once again His pardon and His forgiveness I can forgive them of their little sins and then, at that moment at that moment it is grace when you say you're a sinner I'm a sinner, we're two sinners we live at a home that has as its address fallen world and because of the sin in me I'm impacting this marriage But God is working on that sin in me and He's actually using this mate across the table in partnership with Him to work on my sin. So it's grace that says we're two sinners. But it's transforming grace when we say, I see a sinner, but I see my sin too, and it's great. And by God's forgiveness of me, I'm able... To forgive, I'm able to serve, I'm able to, to love that person. This morning we have a table, not just any table. We have a table that we're taught by the scripture that Christ sat at. In fact, it's called His table. And I want you to imagine this. As you make your approach to this table, I want you to imagine Christ's from you. And as you look, you're looking as a sinner to one who's taken all of your sin. And now he speaks words to you. Not words of judgment, but he reminds you, even as he speaks to the elements on this table, of your forgiveness. He reminds you of your union with him. That he is a groom who looks to you and he says, You're just as beautiful now as the day we first met. And that's so knowing and being reminded that you're Christ's beauty would so fill you. It would be so satisfying that you can now look to your mate and say, you're beautiful, such as you are. Even as Christ looked at me such as I was and said I was beautiful, and I can look at my mate and say, you're beautiful. To guys, wives, one thing that we long to hear from you is that word submit. All right, right. your mind just went somewhere. Come back to me. The word submit means revere. It means respect. And I know it may sound odd, but we want your respect even more than we want your love. Now, don't get me wrong. We We want your love, but one way you communicate your love to us is you tell us that you're proud of us, you don't have to come and say, I respect you. Just, just remind us that you're proud of us and that we're successful in your eyes, that, you're, that we're men, and that you, you're glad that we're your husband. Husbands, your wives need to hear, not simply on the day that you marry them that you love them, but repeatedly, repeatedly, day by day by day, that you love them that you love them, that you love them. Because many wives struggle with that assurance. And don't make it just words. Hear Christ say to you, I love you. We're hungry, and he speaks from this table to us, we're hungry to hear from God again through Christ that even in our screw-ups and our failures to walk like we ought to walk in our offensive ways and our sin, and he comes to us again and says, I still love you still love you. I love you, love you, love you. You're mine. And then, as we are fed from this table, we're able now, from this table and from His love, from His respect to us, we're able to give it and feed the hunger of our mate. Let's pray. Father, Father, I feel like um, there's a lot that's been left unsaid. said. But you know what we need to hear, and you know how many times we feel so powerless. Take this bread and this cup and use it in such a way that as you feed us, Christ, from this table, we will be made strong in our love. We'll be made strong and reassured that we are yours. And that you are ours forever. That nobody can take that away from us. And no assault or no nothing can be said to us that would cause us to be demeaned. But we'll take that out of this, we'll take these elements and they will give us such strength that we can love one another. So use these elements this day for that, we pray. In your name, Christ. I wanna invite our elders to come forward as they prepare to